Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Front Range. My name is Johnny. I'm one of our pastors here. I am so honored to be with you this morning, especially if it's your first time at Front Range, or maybe you just knew over the last couple of weeks. We hope that this place will become a home for you, where you can build community, discover your purpose, and grow in your faith in Jesus. And we have a lot of stuff going on, even with it being summer. There are a lot of different ways to get connected and and, uh, join the life of our church here. I want to let you know next Sunday, we're going to celebrate Father's Day as a church and all the dads. We're going to include all the men in our lives, call it Man Day. We got dudes uh, grilling and smoking meat for a little bit of a competition. That's going to be amazing. We'll have donuts. It's just going to be a great celebration. Uh, If you're a dude in here and you want to be a part of that competition, you haven't signed up yet, grab that uh, connect card in your worship guide and write, I I don't know, like meat or something on there, I guess. (laughs) We'll just say that and we'll follow up with you, give you some details on that. But make sure that you just join us next Sunday to celebrate the dads in our lives and all of the men. Uh, Today, we are continuing our series on the Ten Commandments. And we kicked this off last Sunday. Pastor Ernest kicked it off. I want to encourage you, if you missed the message last week, or even if you were here for it, go on our website, check out what we call a series hub, frontrange.org. There's a messages tab. Series hub is right on there. We are putting a bunch of resources and things for you to go deeper in your faith, to take a next step, and to grow as we go through each of our series this year. All the messages are on there as well. So if you missed it last week, it'll be there. If you just want to join a reading plan, something like that, check out the series hub. Now, thousands of years ago, God rescued his people, the nation of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. They had been in slavery for 400 years, and he wanted them to be a people that would bear his name, that would represent him to the world around them. And in order for that to happen, he needed to remake them into a people worthy of carrying his name. And so he gave them these commandments. And when we think of the commandments today, we tend to think of them as just rules or laws. Now, they are commandments, but they're so much more than just rules and laws. They are a love letter from God, and they are a pathway for us to love God back. It is a way for God's people to identify as God's people and say, we represent him. Here's what it looks like to represent our God. Think about what it looks like to love someone and how you would show someone that you love them. Uh, think think, Think about when you first fell in love, and and maybe it was a long time ago for some of us, but think about what you would do to show someone love. You might think of the five love languages. If you're familiar with that, there's words of affirmation, uh, physical touch, gifts, acts of service. What's the one my wife likes I always forget? Uh, Quality time, that was it. (laughs) I'm kidding. I ran that by her. She thought it was funny. So uh, you might think of that. I don't know. When you first fell in love, you may have written them love letters like we talked about last week. You may have bought flowers or chocolate. You may have stood outside their bedroom window with a boombox and serenaded them with Peter Gabriel to win their hearts. You guys familiar with this scene? Probably. There you go. Okay. Say anything. Go look it up. It's a great movie. Don't do that today, though. The only thing you'll win is a restraining order. Just don't don't do that. that was, there you go. I was going to say, I was supposed to be funny. Thank you. Thank you. My, my point in all of this is that when you love someone, you show them your love through words and actions. We invest in people when we love, and we will sometimes do out of the ordinary things because we are driven by love. That idea showing someone you love them. That is at the heart of the second commandment that we're going to look at here today. This commandment is, a, is all about who, what, and how we love. If you've got a Bible, open up to Exodus chapter 20. 
We're, we're going to look at verse 4 in there. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. We'd also love to get you a Bible, the blue connections tent out in the courtyard. We've got them there. Just walk up there and grab one. We don't need anything from you. We just want you to have a Bible. Here's what God said to his people in the second commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. Here's what it says. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything on, in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow in worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Now, as we read this, I know that the language of idols is not something that's very familiar to us. Most of us don't have statues of birds or ancestors in our bedroom that we pray to every day. I brought this golden goose just to sort of represent this for us today, So just so we have a little bit of a visual. Most of us don't have something like this at the front of our house that before we leave for the day, we go, oh, golden goose, please give me good fortune. What would you pray to a goose for, like a golden egg or something? I don't know what you would ask it for. Most of us don't do that, right? But remember, think back thousands of years ago, the nation of Israel, they are coming out of slavery in Egypt, and God needs to remake them into a people known by his name and his ways. The, the, the Egyptian nation was full of deities, gods and goddesses. Today, we know of over 1,500 named deities that the Egyptians would pray to. They would look to these statues, these idols, to meet their needs, to bring their blessings. They had deities that would represent every aspect of life, good and bad, that they would pray to, that they would worship and serve. And with this second commandment, God wanted to make sure that the Israelites knew that nothing on earth, no created thing, can compare to his amazing power and greatness. He cannot be contained in a bird or a fish or even the sun. He cannot be contained in a simple statue or an idol. God tells the Israelites not to bow in worship or to serve them. These were things that you would do to show your devotion, to show your affection, to earn favor. You would express your commitment and your love to these deities so that they would in turn fulfill your hopes and your desires. You would give them power over your life so that in return they might give you their power. And God is trying to get them and us to realize nothing compares to his greatness and his power. I'm going to put this away so that we're not distracted by it for the rest of the day. Now, we may, we may think of this and think, that's silly. Again, you don't have a golden goose at your house that you pray to every day, probably, or like a statue of your ancestors or anything like that. But if you begin to think about what happens with idolatry and the way that human beings tend to look to something else to meet our needs and what's actually happening Underneath all of that, where we look for our fulfillment and our hope, you begin to realize that we're not without our own idols today. They just don't look like a, a golden goose. They look like money, power, success, sex, even our own children sometimes. There is an absolutely life-changing book that's called Counterfeit Gods, uh, written by Pastor Tim Keller. He passed away recently. We lost a giant of the faith uh, in him going to be with the Lord. But this book is, again, life-changing. It's linked on our series hub, so you don't have to write it down right now. Just go check out the series hub. There's a link on there. He talks about idols, and he uses this term, counterfeit gods. And here's what he says about idols. 
An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Take a picture of that quote if you haven't already. What could possibly be more important to us than God? Well, if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of things fit the bill based on the way that we live our lives and who and how we worship and serve. The problem with idols is that when we look to them to meet our needs and fulfill that promise, they instead take from us more than we ever meant to give to them. They demand our attention, our devotion, and sacrifice And in return, we're left empty and unsatisfied. And we know this. Many of us have looked to people, things, experiences to fill something missing in our lives, to fulfill us, to bring us that security and significance. And we found ourselves lacking. Our God knows that worshiping and serving created things rather than him as creator is a pathway to brokenness and a wasted life. I don't want to waste my life. I don't know about you. I don't want to get to the end of my life and find that I've been looking to something or someone else for hope and peace, and I'm left lacking. So what do we do about it? Keller says, the secret to change is to identify and dismantle the counterfeit gods of your heart. So we're going to look at some ways that we can begin to identify the idols in our lives and then talk about how we dismantle them. So the first way that we can begin to see what idols we may have in our hearts is to identify what occupies your mind. Identify what occupies your mind. It's been said that your true religion is what you do with your solitude, meaning when you've got nothing else going on, nothing pressing to do, where does your mind go? What do you think about? What do you daydream about where is your imagination? Think back again to the first time that you fell in love, and I know many of us it may have been a long time ago, but let's let's think back to that time. What what like what was that like? I'm sure for many of us that person occupied our mind throughout the day. When my wife and I first fell in love and we began dating, I thought about her all day long. Now this was before we had cell phones and we could text and keep in, keep up to date all throughout the day. I had to like actually pick up the house phone and call her in the evening. You guys remember house phones? If you're under like 20, you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. There used to be a house that was like, I mean a phone that was like plugged into the wall and you had to, anyway, that's a whole thing. Look it up, Google it. But I, I just... I thought about her all day long because I couldn't stay in contact with her. She had my mind because she had my heart. She occupied my mind. Now today, as we grow up and we begin doing what's called adulting, our lives and our minds are filled with many other things, worries, fears, anxieties, even dreams of success and prosperity, stuff we want to accomplish, experiences we hope to have in our lives. And it's not wrong to think about these things. Don't hear me say that. It's not wrong to have your mind filled with thoughts of work. I think about work all the time. I love what I do. I want to do the best job I can. The key here is to ask yourself, do I think about those things more than I think about God himself? 
When our minds are filled with something else other than God, it can reveal an idol. If all I think about is my work 24-7 and the need to be successful or to be seen as successful, it could reveal that I'm looking to find my significance and my security and my identity somewhere other than God. So the first way that we can begin to find the idols in our hearts is to identify what occupies your mind. Next, examine how you spend money. Examine how you spend money. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He makes an explicit tie between where we spend our money, how we spend our money, and where our hearts are, or to say it another way, who and what we love. If your heart is with someone, they have your affection, your desire, your attention, and you will invest in them and the relationship. That's the idea that Jesus is getting at is where are we investing our money because that can reveal where our heart is. If we spend a large amount of money on experiences and vacations and lots of toys, is that wrong? No, not necessarily, but we have to ask why we spend so much in those areas. Are we hoping that the expensive vacation will meet a need for rest and peace and contentment that can only actually be met in a relationship with God and living the way that he calls us to live. Think about it another way. If I do absolutely nothing with my money but save and save and save and I never live generously, I never give to God or help meet other people's needs, what does that reveal about where I'm putting my financial security and my hope? Am I looking to a certain number in the bank account and holding on to it all in my control? Am I looking to that to make me feel secure? This is part of the reason that God tells us to tithe, to give the first 10% of what we earn back to him. It's a recognition of him as our provider, and it's us saying, I am going to show that my heart is with God first by giving him the first 10% and recognizing that I'm a steward of what he's given to me. That's part of why he calls us to do that. I'm going to stop meddling with your thoughts and your money. Let's move on to our emotions. Let's go. The next way to identify an idol is to pay attention when you don't get your way. Pay attention when you don't get your way. Disappointment and discouragement can be a check engine light for what's going on inside of our hearts. When you get frustrated and you don't get your way, emotions flare up. Usually for me, it's anger. Many people will get bitter and explode. Others will get sad and crumble when something is disappointing or discouraging. And it's, it's important to pay attention to uncontrollable emotions in our lives because they could be a symptom of an idol. Idols will rattle you when they are threatened. Let me say that again. Idols will rattle you when they are threatened. When something comes against an idol in your heart, you'll feel it. And so it's important to pay attention to what happens when you don't get your way. They, they will lash out and cause a reaction. And we have to ask ourselves some questions when that happens. Why am I so disappointed? What was the deeper hope or longing that I wanted to be fulfilled in this situation? Is it possible that I made the outcome or the situation more important than God himself? I'm not saying it's wrong to have hopes or dreams or expectations and desires. Please don't hear me say that. Please keep hoping and dreaming and expecting and praying and seeking. But as we do that, we have to be careful to not seek or hope for created things more than the creator himself. He's the only thing 
that will ever truly satisfy us. The Psalms, this is why I love the Psalms, they are full of proclamations and reminders of the faithfulness and the steadfast love of our God. And they also give us language to pray and to speak when things don't go our way. The Psalms are full of saints in history past saying, God, I trust you, and yet I am basically bummed out by this situation. I'm frustrated. This didn't go the way I wanted it to. When will you show up, God? When will you fulfill your promise? When will you show yourself to be faithful? This can help us give language to what's going on in our hearts. And so if you're not already reading or praying the Psalms as part of your daily rhythms, I want to encourage you to do that because, again, it helps give language to what's going on, what you're feeling, what you're thinking, and it helps bring that stuff out in our lives. So the way that we can begin to find the idols in our hearts is to identify what occupies your mind, examine how you spend money, and pay attention when you don't get your way. But once we've done that, how do we begin to dismantle the idols in our hearts? Well, we have to remember that idols can't simply be removed, they have to be replaced. Idols can't simply be removed, they have to be replaced. The thing about the human heart, all of us, human nature, is we are designed to worship, to give our affection and our love and our service to something outside of ourselves. That is built inside of us, and it is meant to draw us to our creator. It's meant to help us realize that we need something, someone outside of ourselves for salvation and fulfillment and peace. But we're given the freedom to decide what to do with that worship and that devotion. And the heart of the second commandment is God saying, I need you to recognize that you are going to be drawn to these things other than me, and you have to fight against that. You have to remove the idols in your heart and replace them with God. He is the only one that's worthy of our worship and our devotion. No one and nothing else can ever give us what we're actually truly looking for and longing for. The Apostle Paul picks up on this theme in his letter to the Colossians. He says in Colossians chapter 3, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. I love this, this dual nature of our heart and our mind. Paul is reminding us, he's pointing our affection, our worship, our love towards things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And the imagery here is meant to remind us that Christ is seated on a throne. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, the sustainer, the author and perfecter of our faith. And when Paul reminds us to set our hearts on things above, he's reminding us your heart is meant to be with the true king and the true Lord because he is the one who is holding all of creation together and he is the only one worthy of our affection and our love. And then Paul says to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. This is meant to to push us to have rhythms and practices to keep our minds focused on him. We talk all the time about practices like reading scripture and prayer and worship. This is meant to give us a daily rhythm when our minds tend to be uh, thrown off balance or to, uh, tempted or tempted to be focused elsewhere. It brings us back into alignment where we are thinking about Jesus. We're thinking about God and how awesome and magnificent he is and how much he loves us. The next thing that Paul says to do in verse 5 is to put to death, therefore, Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, 
sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. He gives us these examples and says, put them to death. This is meant to be a call to action. Please don't go put to death any people or things or animals, okay? That's meant to be a joke. You can laugh. It's all right. There you go. Thank you. Put to death is saying, take this seriously. Do something about this. I had to do this recently. I had a situation, didn't expect this, didn't see this coming, uh, where God revealed something, and I had to do something about it. Uh, Like many of you, my family, we made a commitment to For the Church, For the City, our our generosity initiative, where we're um, funding and building our future church home. And so we made, uh, we we were praying through it last fall, and we, we had a safe number, and we had a faith number that we feel like God was calling us to. And the faith number was gonna be a stretch for us. And so we did the math on everything. Okay, we'll do our monthly giving. And then we had these other chunks of money that we were going to give throughout the campaign. And so we started the monthly giving and we started saving in different areas uh, to make those larger donations. Now, interest rates are insane right now. If you've tried to buy a house recently, you know that. That's terrible for you. It's great for high-yield savings accounts, though. I'm not a financial advisor. Just want to say that up front. So there's these interest rates that, like, man, if you've got a chunk of money somewhere, there's, like, a little bit of money that can start getting built up. And so we've been putting our, our commitment in this high-yield savings account, and I felt very good about the last couple of months and just making interest. I felt very wise, and like a good steward, we're, we're just doing good things with this money. It's not that I'm not going to give the money, right? I've already made the commitment, but we're just, we're being good stewards. And I, on paper, all this makes sense. But my, my wife very innocently recently was like, hey, when are we actually going to give that money that we committed? And I was like, oh yeah, we'll do, we'll do that eventually. Like, man, interest rates are just so crazy. Like, why would we not make money off of it? And like, again, all of it makes sense. On paper, it just makes sense. And I could justify it. I was vacuuming the other day. Believe it or not, I was vacuuming. Uh, And I was just like rolling all this around in my head and like her question just like, it stuck with me. And I'm like arguing with myself. Like, why not give the money right now? Oh, but the interest rates and we're making money. And yeah, but what's that mean? Like all that kind of stuff. And I just felt God very clearly go, I want you to give the money right now. (laughs) I had to turn the vacuum off. And I just kind of stopped. And I knew, I knew instantly something with that money had gone sideways. Not that money had become an idol necessarily for me, but the control of my money had begun to to take up space in my heart, and I began to feel very prideful, and and, uh, I just had all these things tied up, financial security. I was very proud of the number that we had and all those sorts of things, but I felt God going, yeah, that's become a problem, and I need you to do something about it. I need you to put that to death, and I had to take action. An action that doesn't make any sense. Because again, on paper, make money sounds great, right? Be a good steward. But God was calling me to do something. How many of us here today know that God may be pointing out something in our hearts and saying, that's become an idol. You've begun to look at this person, this thing, this experience, and you've tied something to it. You've tied a piece of your heart your value, your significance, your security, you've tied it to that thing in a way and God warning us that it's only going to disappoint you and it's only going to leave you broken and sad and empty. We've all been there. Here's the truth though, guys. Jesus is the one that can meet our needs. He, God put on flesh, lived among us, suffered, 
experienced temptation and pain and chose to go to the cross to pay the price for our sins. And man, if the story ended there that Jesus died for us, that would be nice, but it would be sad. And this would all be worthless. But he rose from the dead. He conquered death and the grave. He was resurrected. He guarantees eternal life for each of us who put our faith in him. And he earned the right to be the only one worthy of our worship and our affection and our desires and our hopes and our dreams. People, things, they're nice. They're great. We love people. We love our spouses. They can never do what Jesus can do. They can never fulfill us the way that Jesus can, and he proved it by rising from the dead. He loves us. He knows what the world will give us. The bill of goods that we've been sold by culture that says, if you just have this or do this, it'll make everything great. You'll be happy. Jesus knows that that's not the case. And he invites each and every one of us into a relationship where we can come to him and he says, hey, that thing matters to you more than me, and it's going to hurt you. And I don't want that to happen. Please put it to death. Come to me. Put your hope, your trust, your faith in me. Jesus invites each and every one of us into that relationship and an ongoing journey of dying to ourselves, putting the idols of our hearts to death and finding our hope and our fulfillment in Jesus. What is God pointing out in your heart here today? What is he saying, hey, that might be a problem? That might be something that you've taken as a good thing and you've made it an ultimate thing and it's gonna hurt you. What is he calling you to do with that idol this morning? Let's search our hearts, figure out where we're at and decide that we're gonna actually do something about it and respond to the love of Jesus that sent him to the cross. Respond to that love with our own love by putting our idols to death and choosing to worship and serve him alone. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for the gospel, for the truth of what Jesus has done for us. Lord, that you sent him to die, to pay the price for our sins. And you raised him from the dead so that we can put our hope and our trust in you for eternal life, for salvation. God, search our hearts in this moment. Reveal to us the idols of our hearts where we've been putting our trust and our hope other than you. And God, empower us. Give us the strength to do what's necessary to put those idols to death so that we might worship and serve you alone. And God, as we're in this moment, I know that there are many folks who come here every single week looking for hope, looking for life. And it's only found in you, God. May that be true for each and every one of us in this moment. May we feel and experience your love your mercy, your grace in this moment. As everybody's heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want to give you an opportunity this morning to give your life to Jesus, to follow him. If you've never done that before, maybe you came in here this morning, you don't even know what you were looking for. The answer is Jesus. The answer is putting your faith in him for salvation, trusting him and experiencing his love and his grace. Maybe you made that commitment years ago and You've gone astray, you've gone your own way, life has gotten in the way. The Lord is inviting you back home this morning. 
And if that's you, again, everybody's heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around. I'm not going to embarrass you if that's you this morning. I just want to pray for you. And I want to invite you, just slip your hand up for me this morning. If you want to follow Jesus, you say, I'll give my life to him this morning. I want to put him first in my life. Thank you, Lord. God, we come before you in this moment and we confess that we have sinned. We have done terrible things to try to earn salvation, to try to be good enough, to try to find hope and peace. We have messed up. We've made messes. But God, you were perfect on our behalf. Jesus lived a sinless life and died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And we are right now putting our faith and our trust in you. God, cleanse us from the inside out. Save us, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we might live a life worthy of you and that we might make a difference in the world around us. God, give us purpose as followers of Jesus to change the world, to fill it with your glory, God. We are so thankful to be a part of your family that you've called each of us by name, God. Speak to our hearts right now, Lord. We thank you. We love you, God. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.